Amen. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 this morning, beginning in verse 1 as a way of uh, segueing into our verse 2, which is our new verse as we did one verse last Sunday. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this morning, if you're taking notes or mental notes, uh, we have point number one is the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel found here in verse 2 through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So, number one, the promise of the gospel. Now, let me ask you this question. Would you have a hard time believing something that somebody told you that you would never see in your lifetime? Somebody says, I promise you this will happen, but you won't be alive to see it. Uh, I would have a hard time with that a little bit, obviously, depending on who it was that was saying those things to me. But when we look at what Paul is saying here in the book of Romans, he is actually referencing something that had been promised thousands of years ago. The men the Lord anointed and rather appointed to communicate His Word to the people were ordinary men, just like you and me. Yet the promises of God concerning what they were proclaiming, what they were transcribing concerning the Messiah were never accomplished in their lifetime. God was speaking to them, saying these things are going to happen, but they never happened while they were alive. Isn't that crazy? But that didn't mean that they were not going to be accomplished. Paul, it says, was separated unto the gospel of God which was put into effect long before the birth of Jesus. The promise of the Messiah to save His people from from their sins was a promise that was foretold by the prophets of God. A promise that they would have loved to see come to pass. They were speaking these truths. They were writing them down. Yet they would never see them with their eyes. In Matthew 13, 16 and 17, Jesus said, But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So these prophets and these men of old that we look to as these mighty men of faith that God has used. He's saying, man, you that are hearing me speak, Jesus was saying, and you that are seeing me, there are many righteous men and many prophets from long ago that wanted to see the very things that you're seeing. And they wanted to hear, they would have loved to hear the things that you're hearing. They wrote about it, they prophesied about it, and they didn't see it come to pass in their lifetime. So starting in the book of beginnings, which you know is Genesis, we see the beginning of creation. We see the beginning of life. And unfortunately, the beginning of sin and death. But it's also the beginning of salvation. For as Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God began working the plan of salvation out. And though man may be plunged into slavery, into the slavery of sin, God would send a deliverer to Satan. God said concerning the Messiah, which we know as God's Son in Genesis 3, verse 15. Because you've got to understand, and when we're looking at this passage of Scripture this morning, Paul is saying the gospel is presented in the Old Testament all the way back. 
In Genesis 3.15, God spoke to the serpent, as we know as Satan, and he says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman, we know as a prophetic verse, the lineage of the line of Adam all the way down. That there was going to be a problem. And though Satan would one day bruise Jesus with the death, uh, bruise Jesus, Jesus' death on the cross would crush Satan's power once and for all. As he would pay the price for the sin of all mankind, beginning there in the Garden of Eden, as he offered deliverance from sin for all mankind. In Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I don't know if we realize how significant this is what we're reading today. Well, what are you talking about? Verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Old Testament. The gospel belongs to God, and it's the same gospel that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. The plan for salvation through God's Son on the Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. There were two disciples on their way to Emmaus when Jesus met them on the road. And Luke 24, 16 states that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know it was Jesus. So they're on the road to Emmaus. They're depressed. They're down. Jesus was crucified, you know, that previous week. And he was in the tomb. They did not know he had been resurrected from the dead. Or they had heard some things but haven't experienced it personally. And it says this, that... and. As they talked on the road and as they walked together, not knowing that it was Jesus. And they even said, what do you do? Because Jesus said, what things have happened? He's like, Jesus, this man, mighty in word and deed, you know, was crucified. And Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Listen to this. In all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then it says this in verse 27, and this is so amazing. It says, Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus didn't say, man, haven't you guys read the gospel of John? Don't you know anything? The gospel of John wasn't even written yet. He's like, haven't you watched the Jesus movie and know all about? No, he didn't say that. The gospels that we look to when we want to share the gospel with somebody, where do we go? Matthew, and Mark, Luke, oh, especially John. That's where I'm going to tell people about Jesus. Jesus says, because the New Testament wasn't written yet, he says, I will show you everything beginning in the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the prophets. And he expounded to them every single thing concerning himself. When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody out of the Old Testament? <laughs> Think about it. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to tell you about the love of Jesus. I mean, when was the last time any of us have done that? Now, some people 
will argue against Christianity and say, well, you know, well, Christianity's a young religion. You know, and there's religions that have been, you know, oriental religions that have been in existence way prior to Jesus. And they'll, they'll date Christ as, you know, 2,000 years ago or so. But unbeknownst to them, Christ is found throughout the entire Old Testament, long before baby Jesus was born. Well, what if Buddha was born before Jesus, as they will say? Well, Jesus is the creator who made the cells that became the body of Buddha. It cannot be said of Buddha that he existed before he was born, as it says of Jesus in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. Predating existence. So you talk about a young religion, Christianity, the followers of Christ. No, it goes all the way back to the beginning. Back to the beginning. The gospel belongs to God. And that gospel was promised long before the time that Jesus fulfilled what had been proclaimed of him for thousands of years. You realize that. We have the 27 books in the New Testament... Okay, that little tiny passage, and then the 39 books that we have in the Old Testament is the same book, the same Bible that our friends in Israel, the Jews, hold to. Everything up to the last prophetic book in the Old Testament is the same Bible that the Jews have. And that Bible that we have is speaking of the Messiah and God's plan of salvation. And even Paul, when he would be preaching in the synagogues and sharing with people, he wasn't referencing John 3.16 because it hadn't been written yet. Every gospel message up until the time that the gospels were written was based upon the Old Testament. How crazy is that? So, We see, as I said, we have point one, which was the promise of the gospel, which he promised before, verse 2, Romans 1, through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. So not only was this God's gospel, but it concerned God's Son, which is point number two. We have the promise of the gospel. Point number two is the subject of the gospel. And this is concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ. So, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world He gave His Son. The verse that epitomizes the gospel, John 3.16. God's love for the world compelled Him to give His Son, Jesus, as the Savior of the world. Salvation would come from Jesus' death on the cross. Now, I don't know if you realize this, there are over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament. 300, over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. The Bibles that we bring every single week or the app that you open up. There are 300 prophecies pertaining to Jesus that he fulfilled. And we don't have enough time to go over all 300 and something of them, but I wanted to share something with you from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the most graphic prophetic psalms concerning Jesus, and it stands out amongst what I believe all the messianic psalms, psalms pertaining to the Messiah. I'm going to highlight a couple of the verses from Psalm 22, and I'm going to give you the corresponding New Testament verses 
that actually are a record of the events foretold in Psalm 22. So if you want to turn to Psalm 22, you can. I I would encourage you so you can actually see it for yourself. And then I'm going to read what exactly happened. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For those of you that are familiar with the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, that should ring some bells. Matthew 27, verse 46. So we have Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Matthew 27, 46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sins of the world were placed upon Jesus, he was momentarily forsaken by God eternally as he bore the penalty for our sin. In Genesis 2.17, it says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. We know in Romans 6.23, we'll get there in a few months, but it says the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty for sin. It is death. And when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, sin entered the world and thus death entered the world and thus the price for sin was death entered the world. In Psalm 59 verse 2 it says, but your sin has separated you from your God. So my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as your sin and my sin and every disgusting thing that we have ever done and which the world has ever done was placed on Jesus. In Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8, listen to this. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let Him rescue Him. Let Him deliver Him since He delights in Him. That's Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. In Luke 23, it says, And the people stood looking on. Even the rulers with them sneered saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself if He is the Christ, the chosen of God. In verse 14, Psalm 22, and all my bones are out of joint. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, David is the author of this 22nd Psalm. And during David's time, the, the, the mode or the means for carrying out capital punishment was death by stoning, where they would throw large rocks at you until you were dead. It was actually 1,000 years later after this 22nd Psalm that was written on the historical timeline that crucifixion was introduced by the Romans as a form of capital punishment. So for David to write that the Messiah would have his hands and his feet pierced, this form of death that didn't even exist when it was written is absolutely remarkable. In Luke 23, 33, it says, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right hand and other on the left. So he's writing these things. Filled with the Holy Spirit as the Word of God spoke to him and only God being outside of time can see things in the future and give knowledge to man in advance. The Old Testament speaking of how the Messiah would die. They pierced my hands and my feet. But then I also read all my bones are out of joint. 
Interesting that that would even be written in Psalm 22 as well because when you were crucified, they would pierce between, usually I know we say you know, a lot of the pictures is in the hands, but usually what would happen there is there would be tearing that would take place if you were pierced through your hand. But if you uh, were pierced between your wrist, between your ulna and your radius here and your bones and your forearm, it would, it would hold the weight of your arms being into that cross but what would end up happening as you got fatigued and obviously I can imagine not only how excruciatingly painful that would be but what would end up happening is the weight that was on those nails would cause your wrist to be dislocated then down to your elbow to be dislocated and then your shoulder to be dislocated and so you would be hanging there with gravity pulling you no longer able to 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 hold yourself because you would literally have to pull on those nails to lift your body up so the weight wouldn't be on your diaphragm so that you could even take a breath. And so when he says that, that my bones look and they stare at me, it was literally what would happen if you were crucified. You would, I mean, I've had a separated shoulder and that is one of the most painful things that had ever happened. I was in high school, I played basketball, I jumped up for a rebound and a guy came down right here as my arm went up and my arm just went like, like that. It's so painful. But this is what Jesus endured. Again, Psalm 22, verse 18, it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19, 23 through 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture John inserts here might be fulfilled, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. I mean, if that doesn't just blow your mind, I don't know what will. When we're looking at the Bible, he says, the gospel of God that was promised before in the holy scriptures through those prophets concerning his son, Jesus Christ. So we have the promise of the gospel where people are preaching the gospel out of the Old Testament. Everything is is concerning Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus, when interacting with the religious leaders of the day, he said in John 5, 39 and 40, he says, you guys search the scriptures for in them you think that you have eternal life. And listen, 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 listen. Wait for it. These are the things which testify of me. These, the scriptures, you search the scriptures daily, but the scriptures that you're searching daily, they testify of me. The Old Testament, the promise of God concerning his Jesus, his son, our Messiah, the testimony. John the Baptist was sent to bear witness to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit testified of Jesus. The works that Jesus did, His miracles testified of Him. The Heavenly Father, behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Scriptures testified of Jesus. So we see the promise, guys, was way, way long ago. This isn't something that happened 2,000 years ago. This isn't when Jesus was born. 
that this plan, you know, was concocted. No, this was since the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, then the plan for salvation was already in effect. The Word of God in the Old Testament is laced with scriptures concerning the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So far in advance given that only, the only logical explanation would be there has to be something outside of time that is giving this type of information and we know that to be the one and only God. Critics, they can't refute it. And that's, and I mean that honestly, oh, you can say that in church. No, you, you can't. You look at it and the prophecies in the Bible, be like, couldn't they just have gone back and written them and then like, you know, been anachronistic and kind of like inserted them back and then they find the Dead Sea Scrolls that were the oldest manuscripts ever saying the same exact thing. It's insane. You don't have to check out intellectually in order to believe what the Bible says. In verse 3 it says, Who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So, concerning Jesus Christ, God's Son was born of the lineage of David. Back in Romans chapter 1 verse 3. In John 7, verse 42, it says, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? People know. The people in the Bible knew. Hey, this is what's going to happen. The Messiah is coming from the line of David. He'll be born in Bethlehem. The gospel of God promised prophetically in the Old Testament, which we know as the Holy Scriptures, what Paul is saying concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was and always will be the subject of the gospel. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. David, the man after God's own heart, the most famous of the kings of Israel, he desired to build the Lord's house, Some of you might remember this story where David was living in this palace and he sees the the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and it was in a tabernacle, you know, know, a a tent uh, out there. And he's like, why am I dwelling in a palace in the house of gods and shambles? He didn't feel that that was right. Though David was not permitted to build the house he was able to get it set up for his son Solomon to do so but the Lord promised this in 1st Chronicles 17 14 he said I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever speaking of the Messiah the, the seed the lineage of David that he would be established in the house of the Lord and that his kingdom would be established forever. So, Romans 1, beginning in verse 1. Let's read it straight through to 4. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 
The resurrection of the dead. This is so pivotal. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, it says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. In verse 19, 1 Corinthians 15, it says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Christ hasn't been risen from the dead, then we are to be pitied. We have no hope. Our preaching is empty. Your faith is in vain. The scriptures declare Jesus to be the Son of God and the resurrection is proof of that declaration. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 8 it says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. So the Old Testament, all those scriptures with God as their source were written prophesying the arrival of Jesus, the Son of God, which Matthew 1 21 says, and she will bring forth the Son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is what it was all about. This is what we're getting into. This is what Romans is going to be sharing with people that this was God's plan. Salvation. Through his son, Jesus. This isn't elementary. This is actually going to unfold to be one of the most amazing studies we'll ever go through in the Bible. Verse 5. Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship. And apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So through him, we received grace. We've made it our very own. We've taken it upon ourselves through faith in Jesus. And the Greek word for grace is charis, as many of you know. Through Jesus Christ, we have received grace. God has given us an undeserved favor, goodwill, kindness, and blessings. We can never earn God's favor. We can never purchase salvation. But we've received this through Jesus in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For by grace you've been saved. It doesn't say for by works you've been saved. No. What an amazing thing we have as Christians, man. Through God's grace, something that I can never earn, I can never accomplish, God has given me salvation. He has made me alive. He has made me new. This is an amazing promise for the follower of Jesus, but what a terrible blessing is missed out by those who do not follow Jesus. The uncertain and even fearful expectation of standing before God one day and wondering, worrying, if they'd even be good enough to get into heaven. Unfortunately, the promises in the Bible are for the believer in Jesus. There is no word of comfort in pain, there is no consolation when there is a loss. There is no strength and weakness. And there's no precious promise to which to cling to in life and death for those outside of the family of God. That's a horrible thing to have to acknowledge this morning. For the believer, yes, the word of God applies to me. It's living, it's powerful. It gives me everything that I need. It is life for my spirit. For those that do not follow Jesus, they are not afforded that luxury. However, the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, which makes all those promises of God available, is available. And it's possible because of the love of God and through faith in Jesus. Donald Barnhouse said this, and I quote, Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. End of quote. The love of God coming down to us 
When we weren't able to reach up, quite frankly, the Bible says, Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his own love towards you and, and towards me. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And through Jesus, verse 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. In your Bible, would you underline those four words, obedience to the faith, or just make a little note of them? Or you can reach over to the person next to you and underline it in their Bible for them. Obedient faith. This is something that we need to touch on just real quickly this morning. How are we to handle properly God's grace? How are we to handle this amazing grace that God has given us? Well, it's by being obedient to what He says to do and has told us in His Word. Our faith should be demonstrated by our obedience to God. In Ephesians 2 verse 10 it says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. People will say all the time, I am religious, or I am a Christian, or I have faith, but they do not obey what God's Word says. There is a vast difference between an intellectual belief and a spiritual belief. I can say that I believe in Dr. Dre, for those of you that don't know him. Uh, musician, producer, um, beats headphones at the Apple store. I can say, I believe in Jesus Christ. But man, is there a difference between those two beliefs? One, one is a mere faith of my mind. I acknowledge that that man is alive. And the other is a faith of the heart. The faith of the heart is obedient faith. The faith that counts is the faith of obedience. So many people say, I acknowledge or I believe that there's a God. I believe in God. That's like saying, I believe in Julius Caesar. Or I believe in Ronald Reagan or Abraham Lincoln or John Adams or whoever it might be. I intellectually believe that that person exists or existed at one time. But when you say the same thing, people say, well, I believe in Jesus. Is that a saving faith? Is that a spiritual belief? Or is that an intellectual belief? In James 2.19, it says, you believe that there's one God, you do well, because even the demons believe and tremble. I can tell you right now that the demonic forces do not have a spiritual saving faith in Jesus. When it says that even the demons believe that there's one God, they're saying we intellectually believe and understand that to be a reality. Jesus, in dealing with a man in the synagogue that had an unclean spirit, recorded for us in Mark 1, verse 24. This demon cried out, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demons know who Jesus is, the Holy One of God. And so we have Americans and people across the world that say, I'm religious, I'm a Christian, I have belief in Jesus, but they do not do what the Word of God says. And that's why Jesus said, not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And so we need to be able to decipher between an intellectual faith and a saving spiritual faith because we use the same words. We say believe and believe. But they mean something entirely different because I can believe intellectually and reject it spiritually. Do we believe in Jesus? 
We need to not worry about this, 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 this thing that, that even the demons have where they acknowledge Jesus' existence. They acknowledge who He is. That's an intellectual faith, not a spiritual faith. We need to understand the two counterfeits to obedient faith. And they are as follows. Number one, people who want teachings without doing They want teachings without doing, meaning they'll go through the motions of maybe being religious or they'll hear a sermon or they'll read the Bible verse, but they will not live it out. This is a counterfeit to true spiritual faith. I want teachings without doings. I want teaching, I want to hear these things, I want to even appear to be somewhat moral and religious, but I don't do everything that the Bible tells me that I should be doing. And this isn't talking about perfection, it's talking about where's your moral compass? What is your guideline for life? It better be, if you're saying I'm a Christian, it better be the Bible. Otherwise, you like the thought and idea of religion, but you don't do and live it out. Number two, people want doing without the teaching. So you have one group that's like, I want the teachings without the doing. I want to get my, my conscience appeased. I want to appear to be religious because it's good to have some religion in your life, right? But they don't go out and do it. And that's why you'll see people in a lot of different religions. And unfortunately, even in Christianity, where people will live Saturday or Monday through Saturday, you know, just partying, doing whatever they want, like a complete heathen, not Christian. And then on Sunday, they come and they punch their ticket and then they go back and live the rest of their life uh, as somebody that you couldn't even tell that they were a follower of Jesus. So that is having an intellectual understanding, but not a saving faith. I like the teachings, but not the doings. The second are the people who want doing without the teachings, meaning that they'll pick and choose things that they want to believe or even make it up as they go. Well, you know what? This part that says that, you know, I can't live with my girlfriend, I don't really accept that. You know, this part right here that says that I can't cheat or whatever, I mean, come on, I'm trying to make a buck here, whatever it might be. I don't like that. Or this part that says that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, I don't really like that. I kind of think that all roads should lead to heaven, that if you're a good enough person, that you can get to heaven. Because when Jesus says here that, you know, your righteousness, or or rather in Isaiah where it says your righteousness is as filthy rags, I I don't really believe that, you know. So I want want the doings, and I like doing good things, and I I like, you know, just kind of just making it up as I go, becoming my own relative moral compass, I don't want the teachings. I'll just try to be a good person. I'll I'll do the doings without the teachings, and maybe I'll earn my way to get to heaven. And, you know, actually, I am good enough to get to heaven. I mean, look at all the good things that I've done. People who want teachings without doing. People who want doing without teaching. We need to be aware of that. We need to have the Word of God We need to know what it says. We need to study it because it is God's letter to us on how to live a life that pleases Him. And it is not something that you get or I get to pick and choose what I want to believe and what I don't want to believe. I either believe what it says or I don't. You either are all in or you're out. There is no middle ground. For those that follow Jesus, you've actually found that being all in is one of the best places that you could ever be. Because if we're not, then we have too much of the world in our life to truly enjoy and experience what God has for us. And then we have too much of the Lord in us to really enjoy and get involved with what the world has. And then we're just miserable either way because we're stuck right in the middle. 
My pastor, who went to be home with the Lord, Chuck Smith, uh, used to say that those people were called a mugwump. And uh, he said, your mug's on one side of the fence and your wump's on the other side of the fence. And you got one foot in and one foot out. That's not what we want to be doing. We need to have a spiritual faith. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to faith or obedient faith. No matter where you might be at, among all nations, for his name. And I hope that, you know, you've been able to maybe just see the difference between an intellectual belief and a spiritual belief. Because acknowledgement isn't a saving belief because the demons acknowledge who Jesus is, the Son of God, the Holy One, etc., That's not a saving faith. We need a spiritual faith. Obedient faith. We need to have the teachings of the Bible and then we need to act upon it. We just don't need to be the teaching, you know, have the teachings and not the doings or have some doings without the teaching. In verse 6, as we conclude, it says, Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 